Good morning. This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, and if you have a Bible, have your phone, I encourage you to turn there. We'll have the text on the screen as well, but I'm going to go back to it a couple times. I think it'd be good if you had it uh, handy, if uh, you're able to do that. So as Kip said, I'm Mark Powell, and I'm one of the shepherds here. I'm also the dean at Harding School of Theology, so I didn't realize this. It must be Harding School of Theology Day, but thank you, Steve, uh, for leading us in prayer uh, for our school. Uh, Josh Ross is out of town today, so I want to thank him for the invitation uh, to share with you this morning. He and his mom, Beverly, they're at York University in York, Nebraska. They're working at a youth event there, so um, that's where they're at this morning. And one thing I like to do whenever I get a chance uh, to speak, because as one of the shepherds, I get to work with our ministry staff, and as uh, my role with Harding School of Theology, I really get to work with people all over the world. And I just want you to know, you should know this, but just in case you don't, the ministry staff here at Sycamore View is outstanding. Uh, if you don't recognize that, you should. Uh, Kip, this morning, leading us in the praise team. I saw Anna up here with her shoes on. I mean, did you check out those shoes and all the uh, decorations and VBS? And we could just go on and on uh, with our ministry staff, but they are truly outstanding. So I hope when you have an opportunity just to thank them for their work and encourage them in what they do for us. As we turn to God's word, let's go to God in prayer. God, it truly has been good to be with you this morning, to worship you, to praise you. It is good to be in your holy presence. And God, we feel that when we're here, we know your spirit's in our midst. And God, we thank you for that gift. And God, right now, as we turn to your word, we have sung our praise to you. God, we are ready to hear from you. And so, God, we do pray that you would speak. God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. And I pray, God, that your spirit would minister to us this morning in the way that we need to be ministered to. And this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in a series on Acts 2, Squad, Why We Need Each Other. And we're talking about the church. And I know it's popular these days uh, for people to put down the church, disparage the church. Uh, I know there's been people who've been deeply hurt by members of the church, and I understand that. I think if you are around a group of people long enough, you're going to be hurt at some time. But as we turn and, and think about the church, I do just want to say in my life, uh, it's clear to me that the church has been far better to me and has done far more for me than I've never done for it. I think, uh, again, Steve, for your testimony this morning about how in a time of illness, how the church was there and how the church blesses us and cares for us. And I think in my own life how the church has uh, encouraged me, uh, how the church has been there for me in difficult times and in good times. And the church is a gift. God knew we needed each other. God in his uh, wisdom knew that we needed each other. And I'm thankful to God for the gift of the church. And so in Acts 2, we read about the church. And really, um, this isn't just an idealized picture. I mean, this is how the church has been. It's who the church is today. Uh, with God's help, this is who the church can be today. And here at Sycamore View, if you're one of our visitors with us, I hope that you'll see in us something of the church here in Acts 2. Uh, not just in our teaching and practices, but that we'd have the same spirit of God 
that you see at the church in Acts 2, the same love, the same desire for holy living, the same uh, desire to participate in God's mission in the world. And so in Acts 2, verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We've been reflecting on this verse uh, for several weeks now, and I want to focus on that last part, that they were devoted to prayer. The early church uh, wanted to spend time in the presence of God, draw nearer to God, be used by God, participate in God's work in the world, and so they devoted themselves to prayer. And as we reflect on their devotion to prayer, I want to look at one prayer that's been uh, really important in my life. This is the one that you see in Acts 4. It's just a couple of pages over from Acts 2. And it begins here in verse 23. And before we read this prayer, just a little bit of background. This is just a few months after the crucifixion of Jesus. We're told at the beginning of chapter 4 the church is about 5,000 people total. So this is a small group in a vast Roman Empire. Peter and John had just been told by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, to stop preaching. They were threatened to stop preaching. They said, we must obey God rather than men. And then they were released. They go back to the early believers. And then we pick up here in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your holy servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This morning, as we reflect on this prayer, I want to thank two levels. First of all, as a congregation, as a church as a whole, we can think about this prayer as our prayer. But I think individually as well, uh, this prayer speaks to us in our own trials, in our own walk with God also. And three things that just stand out to me as I reflect on this prayer. This first one is the fact that prayer is their first response. I don't know about you, but whenever I find myself in a challenging time, and this is a challenging time for the early church. Things had changed rapidly. If you think about just a few years beforehand, their lives were so different. Just a few months beforehand, their lives were so different. And so everything around them is changing. They're facing these threats. And these threats are real. Just a few months ago, the same people who threatened Peter and John 
had just crucified Jesus, so these are real threats. And so they gather together. And I don't know about you, but when I'm in a situation like this, the first thing I want to do is develop a plan. Let's get a plan of action. Or just do something, do anything. Right? We're Americans. We're people of action. And so we want to get a committee together. We want to develop a plan or we need to just do something in response to the events that's going on in our world or that's going on in our lives. And I think it's fascinating that the first thing the early church does, this is their instinctive response, is that they pray. There's a recognition that the things that are going on in the world, that the things that are going on in their life, it's bigger than them. And before they do something, and they will do something, before they do something, they recognize it's important to stop and to pray, to bring the situation before God. I've been interested the last, it seems like about the last year, maybe a little longer. Whenever we have a tragedy in our society, the standard response of the politicians and leaders is they'll say, well, you're in our thoughts and prayers. It seems like the last year or so, maybe it's been longer. That response, people have kind of soured on that response. Because it seems like a cop-out. So we have this social issue, and there's a great tragedy, and is there really a concern for what's going on? Is there really a concern to take action, to try to stop it? And so the response of, hey, you're in our thoughts and prayers, just seems to kind of fall short for some people. And certainly... I mean, a phrase like that can just be a phrase we use to avoid real issues, real problems, to show lack of concern. But aren't there issues in our world? Aren't there social issues? It's just bigger than us. There's not an easy response. And the most important thing we can do is to pray. That doesn't have to be the last thing we do, but it most certainly should be the first thing we do that we would bring this before God and lift it up to God in prayer. I, uh, I've learned a lot about myself in recent years, and uh, you may be like me. I like to be in control, I found out. I like for things to go the way I want them to go. And you know that life just doesn't always go that way. <laughs> We're not in control. Things don't, go out, uh, don't always proceed the way we would like them to proceed. And so we need to submit ourselves to God in prayer and seek God and God's will. A second thing that stands out to me about this prayer, and this is the one that they pray to, they pray to God, the sovereign Lord. And this changes things. I think this changes our relationship to God. It changes our relationship to the larger world when we recognize that God is the sovereign Lord. So the phrase here in Acts 4 is uh, the word despotes. And I say that because this is where we get the English word despot. And a despot is somebody who has absolute power and absolute control. Now in English, if someone's a despot, that's typically a bad thing. Okay? When human beings have absolute power, absolute control, things don't turn out so well. If you look up who are some despots of recent years, you'll see names like Adolf Hitler or Mao Zedong, or Joseph Stalin. Those are some recent despots. But God has absolute power, absolute control, 
And God is good. God is good. And He's the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them and everything belongs to God. And we serve a sovereign Lord, a Lord who's in control. One prayer practice I like to do is when we think about different attributes of God or different names of God, how God is described, to think about what that says of God, but also to think about what that says about us. So, for instance, God is our Father, and then we in Jesus Christ are blessed to be children of the living God. God is Creator. We are creatures. God is our shepherd. We're sheep. Here, God is our sovereign Lord. And then we are God's servants. Essentially, if you go back and just read through the text, the word servant shows up throughout the prayer. David is called God's servant, and he speaks through the Holy Spirit. Jesus twice is called God's holy servant. The church there is called servants of God. God is sovereign Lord, and this impacts our relationship to God. We're God's servants. We come to trust God. We come to obey God's will. We come to let God lead us in the way that God would lead us. But then God as sovereign Lord also impacts our relationship to the larger world. I've lived in Memphis now about 20, 21 years, and I've become a fan of all things Memphis when it comes to sports. It's kind of hard to live in Memphis and not become a fan of the Memphis Grizzlies, and then in football, the Memphis Tigers, basketball, the Memphis Tigers. But one thing I've learned, and so if you've ever wondered this is the case, I'm just telling you as someone who's kind of come from the outside, it is the case, that whenever you're watching a big game on TV, Everybody's rooting for their team. Did you know that? They're not really rooting for Memphis. They're rooting for, if the Memphis Grizzlies are going to play the L.A. Lakers, we're rooting for LeBron. We're rooting for the L.A. Lakers, people out there in the world. If they're playing, um, who did it, San Fran, uh, the Golden State Warriors, right, they're, they're rooting for uh, Steph Curry. And so you just kind of, you listen to the announcers, and it just feels like everybody's kind of really rooting for the other team. If the Tigers are playing a Power 5 conference, it just feels like kind of really everybody's for the other team. And so there's this thing, you go down to the basketball games, you can get a towel. It's Memphis versus everybody, right? <laughs> uh, and it, it's really true. I know a lot of people, I've seen those towels in other franchises. It's not true. It's true in Memphis. Uh, it's Memphis versus everybody. We're a small market. We don't really belong. And if you felt that way, it's true. Trust me, it is true. It's true. Here in Acts 4, and they quote from, from Psalm 2. And let me just read this again. So, uh, Acts uh, 4, verse 25. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. What they're describing is a situation of God and the people of God versus everybody. This is the people of Israel, the Gentiles, kings like Herod, rulers like Pontius Pilate, you name it. 
The whole world has risen up against God, against his holy servant Jesus, against the church. And if sometimes it feels in our world that it really is the world against God and the people of God, it's God versus everybody. That's the way it is sometimes. That's the way it was here in Acts chapter 4. But God is the sovereign Lord. And what's fascinating here, this very next verse, 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. What they're talking about there is the crucifixion of Jesus. And if ever there was a time when it seemed like the world had defeated God, the people of God, the Word of God, if ever there was a time that God had been defeated, surely it would be when the Son of God was tortured and rejected and humiliated and crucified. And yet God even used that for His glory and for the redemption of the world. And if God can take the crucifixion of Jesus, and if God can, through His sovereignty, bring about His glory from that, bring about our salvation from that, we should have no fear. God is the sovereign Lord. If it's God and the people of God against everybody, God wins. And so we can trust in that. We can trust in God. And then the third thing that strikes me is what they pray for. Because early church prays for boldness. And again, I don't know about you, but in situations like this, a lot of change, a lot of danger, think about the things we pray for, the things we hear people pray for. I pray for safety. Right? Keep me safe, God. Sometimes we pray, man, wouldn't it be great if we could just go back just the way things were? Let's go back a couple years ago. Things were so much more peaceful. Can we just go back to the past? This is a side note, by the way, but it's, it's important. I've become convinced in recent years that this longing for the past is a sign of faithful, faithlessness. We're not walking with God into the future. We're just kind of longing for the past. And I think of Israel. You know, think about Israel. They come up out of Egyptian slavery, and they keep thinking about the past, and that's faithlessness. They're not trusting God and walking with God into the future. So we pray for our safety. We pray for a return to the past. What the early church prays for in the midst of all the change, and the challenges, they pray for boldness to be able to speak God's word and to be able to live out God's word. They prayed for boldness. Now, I think it's important for us to get kind of a wrap around what boldness looks like. Obviously, boldness isn't timidity, being ashamed of God. But I think, too, we can kind of miss boldness on the other side as well. Sometimes I'm on social media. And I see people who I think see themselves as being bold. And I'm just going to tell you, in my, my sense, my sense of when I read it is it just comes off being rude or they're a jerk and they're telling the truth. But is that boldness if it's not the truth in love? Here, the Holy Spirit's going to give the church boldness. This is a gift of the Spirit. When we read in Scripture, uh, we know love is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So this boldness here that uh, these early Christians are talking about 
isn't a rudeness, it isn't kind of owning the opposition of God, but they are going to speak God's word. They're going to speak it with love. It may or may not be accepted. It's not their job to convince others of God's truth. God is sovereign Lord. But they speak God's word. They live out God's word with boldness, a boldness that's connected and combined with love. And the result of their prayer is that the place is shaken, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they speak God's word boldly. This notion of boldness shows up throughout the book of Acts, and it's a key, uh, key word in the book of Acts. In fact, if you go all the way to the end, these are, this is the last, last two verses in the book of Acts. Paul is uh, under house arrest. He's about to have an audience with Caesar. And uh, in the meantime, he's waiting. And this is how the book of Acts ends. And uh, this is 28, verse uh, 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. For the rest of the book, they continue to proclaim the word of God with boldness. Paul here, under house arrest, awaiting an audience with Caesar, his life is on the line. He is able to speak the word of God with all boldness and without hindrance. And Acts is one of these fascinating books. That's it. That's how the book ends, right there. <laughs> That's the end of the book. And there may be several reasons for that. One thing I think is profound about the end of Acts is Acts doesn't end. The same church we read about in the New Testament, we are the people of God today. The same spirit that empowered that early church empowers us today. And we continue to proclaim the good news of God just like the church did uh, in these first centuries. The book of Acts doesn't end, it continues, and we're a continuation of what we read about here in the book of Acts. I uh, shared when I first came up that I am dean at Harding School of Theology. I became dean two years ago, uh, right after COVID. And I've talked to several folks who've stepped into new positions like that right after COVID. We had some people retire, some things were changing around, and I uh, got to step into this position right at such a great time, right? Right after COVID. And I'm going to be honest with you, it really was a challenge. And there's business leaders out there that have faced challenges. There's other educational leaders that have faced challenges. Personally, we face challenges coming out of COVID. And so what do you do? I mean, what do you do? You're coming out of COVID, kind of puts you in this leadership role. Have at it. I talk to ministers uh, all over the country, all over the world, and uh, ministers who had been at their churches for a while, and I just said, man, what's next? What's next after COVID? What do we do? And I'm convinced that two things, I like to be simple, I like to be simple, there's two things we do. The first thing is we worship and we pray. I'm putting those together. But we weren't created to solve problems. We were created to worship God. 
And we pray because we are utterly dependent on God, the Sovereign Lord. The second thing we do is we step into mission. You've got to take a step. I think God opens doors for us. He reveals places for us to begin to pursue, to walk into. We pray, we step into mission with the boldness that God provides. I know individuals here, maybe your life just feels stuck, especially coming up out of COVID. Maybe you're afraid with all the events that are taking place in our world. Maybe there's a lot of chaos in your life and you're not sure, you know, what do I do? What do I do? And I think what this prayer tells us, what the, the people, the early church tells us is there's two steps I'd encourage you to think about this morning. To worship God, you were created to worship God and to pray, to submit to God, to seek God's will. And then secondly, to take a step into mission to take a step into obedience. You know what God is calling you to do. I don't know what God is calling you to do, but you know what God is calling you to do. And so you have to take that first step into obedience, take that first step, get out of our own lives, and take that first step in mission, living for a greater purpose. For some of us, that first step, honestly, might just be to come to God and, and commit ourselves to God. Have we put our faith in Christ? Have we been united with Christ in baptism? Have we committed ourselves to God and the people of God? That may be your first step. But I think what we learn here from the early church, prayer is central in taking that first step of walking with God. In obedience, taking that first step into mission is what God calls us to do. We're going to transition right now to the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to ask Joe Ward, one of our shepherds, he's going to come down to the front. I'll also be up front here. I believe Stoney Ramsey's going to be in the back. We have Rachel Galbraith and uh, Kim Chapman are going to be on the exit doors, by the exit doors, to receive you for prayer. We also have tables. There's two down front and there's others spread out in the back of the auditorium for the Lord's Supper. Week after week, as part of our worship, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it is really multifaceted. But two things that's on my mind this morning is, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we proclaim until Christ comes. We proclaim the gospel, the good news. Jesus Christ died for our sins. We have been reconciled to God. Jesus is risen from the dead. He reigns. And we too will one day be raised. We have a great hope. God has poured out His Spirit on us. He's called us to participate in what He's doing in the world. And we today have the privilege of proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. God's will is breaking into the world. We get to be a part of that in the things we say, the things we do. And we have a great hope. One day God is going to make all things new. And week after week, as we come to the table, we remember the gospel. We proclaim it to the world. But then another thing we do is we commit ourselves to God. God, we're going to be your servants, servants of the sovereign Lord. We're here to do your will. We want to take a step into mission. And God, we commit ourselves week after week to you.
And so we'll take the bread and we'll take the cup, the body and blood of our Lord, and we'll celebrate together as a family what God has done for us. So let's pray together. Our sovereign Lord, we do worship you and we praise you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of the early church. And God, right now, just as your people have done for over 2,000 years, right now, God, we come and we take the bread and we take the cup. It was given for our salvation. The body and blood of Christ was given for our salvation. And God, we commune with you and we commune with your people. Bless this bread. Bless this cup. Bless this time. Be present with us. And this is our prayer.